0: Let's take our Bibles this morning and open them to Psalm 73. This is the first psalm in the third book of the psalms. Now, how many books of the psalms are there? Five. Five books of the psalm broken into 150 psalms it's always that's bible trivia you got to be ready for those types of questions the shortest guy in the bible was bill dad the shoe height was was he shoe height oh never mind Jeez. okay okay let's get focused here on psalm 73 a great psalm and it was supposed to be used in worship okay now keep that in mind this was written by a guy named Asaph, and Asaph was a Levitical priest who wrote, once we count all the Psalms in Book 3 and, and one more Psalm uh, someplace else, wrote, wrote 12 Psalms. So he actually wrote more of the Bible than uh, Peter and James and Jude and some of those Old Testament minor prophets Uh, And we know a little bit about it, but not too much. But not too much. But this is a psalm of Asaph to be used in worship. Okay, so let's keep that in mind. So if you're able, would you stand with me? And I'll read the first nine verses of Psalm 73. (laughs) Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, we ask that your Holy Spirit would descend upon us. Open our eyes to your word. Fix it in our hearts. Make our eyes see and our minds understand So that we may live out the truth that is here. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 73 verses 1 through 9. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death and their body is fat They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. This is God's inspired word for us today, so please be seated. Now, we're going to break the psalm into four sections, and today we're only going to cover verses 1 and 2, uh, and then over the course of the next couple of weeks, we'll, we'll address those issues. Uh, so really, verses 1 and 2 remind us of the goodness of God, and then 3 through 9, what, whatever we, what else we read today, talks about the status of the wicked, and then there is... Uh, A question of, well, should I live a holy life, given the way that the wicked live and how they prosper is holiness in vain. And then at the very end of the psalm, we find that there is truth in the presence of God. Now, as I said, remember that this was to be used in worship, and this was a song to be sung in worship. So the first two verses in particular, the the theme of the psalm in, in general is this This stumbling block for believers that we faced off and on all of our lives. And as we'll look at in a moment, Job's friends could not get over. They just could not come to grips with the fact that Job was a righteous man, but he was suffering. I mean, it says very clearly that Job was, uh, there are four words to it, and we'll see them he was a righteous man. How is it that the wicked prosper and that the godly struggle? Well, the problem is stated for us here in the opening verses, and what was bothering the psalmist was the apparent contradiction between what he had been taught in the scriptures that God was good to the upright, to those who were pure in heart, to those, as Paul says, called according to his purposes, and what he was experiencing in life in general. Now, the first problem is that he is defining good as most men would define good. That is by material blessing. He assumed that those who were being receiving material blessing, that they were experiencing good. And all it, really all it takes is uh, you know, about 10 seconds on an internet search of what happens to those who win the lottery. Okay? And, and you see the lives that uh, suddenly this influx of 20 and 50 and 100 million dollars into their lives and how quickly they burn through it. Uh, because they they really don't understand this this prosperity. They haven't earned it. Uh, All they did was they bought a $2 ticket or a buck ticket. I don't even know what it costs now. Anybody want to confess? (laughs) And and suddenly all this money comes in, and, and their lives so many lives are destroyed because of that. So the first problem is to define good as material blessing. God defines it in his own way, and therefore that is the right way. Now, I, I don't mean to be um, make it simplistic or be dogmatic, but if God says it's good, then it's good. It doesn't matter how I perceive it or how I look at it or what I think about it. If God says this is good, then it is good. Now, the second issue here is that the issue that we face that all believers do. Do I trust my experience or do I trust God's word? And we might even expand that For me to say, do I trust your experience or do I trust God's word? All it takes is one quick trip to the bookstore or Amazon website and you can read extensively about various people's experiences with God. Experiences with God. Now throughout history, and and this is just a cursory uh, view of it, We have people who have claimed to see visions, had out of body experiences, who have been to heaven for some period of time and then returned, that the Holy Spirit has made them do things like run and dance and bark like a dog and roll on the ground and pass out. And in cases of what I think we all would agree would be mental illness, is that God has told me to kill you. Okay, I think that, I don't believe I can find that in Scripture and apply it today. Okay, but we also have people who have claimed that the Holy Spirit and Lord has told them to take the gospel to India, to take the gospel to China, to go down on the corner and present the truths of Christ, to go to their next-door neighbor and share Christ with them. Okay, and, and as the story you might remember of the, the little lady in Burgstown, Pennsylvania, who was woken up at night and convinced that she had to go out in the middle of a deserted road because there were people in need. And you know what? There were two of my friends with a flat tire and no spare. And she shows up. Now, how do you how do you argue with that? Okay? So here we have an experience that that the Lord came to her and said, and and it was correct, it was successful. Okay. So how do we judge the validity of experiences? Are they from God, or are they counterfeits from Satan? Or are they because we ate pizza too late last night? How do we judge these things? Okay? I have friends who have said that they have seen visions. And the vision told them to go and do a particular type of ministry. And they've been incredibly successful doing those ministries. I have other friends who have said they've seen visions to go and do a particular type of ministry. And they have failed. And it's been no success. Which do we judge was from God? And which do we judge be indigestion? These are difficult things to judge. Graham Goldsworthy speaks to this question in his book, Gospel and Wisdom every case of special guidance given to individuals in the Bible has to do with that person's place in the outworking of God's saving purposes. And then he adds, There are no instances in the Bible in which God gives special and significant guidance to the ordinary believing Israelite or Christian in the details of their personal existence. Usually they are called to some great work in ministry. We see this, um, uh, you know, the call of the prophets. We see the Lord coming to these people to do these great things, working out the purposes of God in this world. There are instances in Scripture in which people describe a sense, or are there instances in Scripture of people describing a sense of what God wants them to do? Okay, well... We see in scripture that there are uh, evidences of God speaking in an audible voice through supernatural dreams, through supernatural visions, through writing on the wall. I mean, how many of us have had prayed, Lord, can't you just write it on the wall again so I know exactly what to do? Okay. We see the Lord coming in a blinding light. We see a thunderous voice from heaven. We see the prophet after all these things, the Lord comes in this whisper as he's, he thinks he's alone in the, in the world. And these, these passages are much different than what most people hear say about, oh, I experienced God because I, it was this, this sense that I needed to do this. I know it came from God. These are difficult things to judge. Because once we say, okay, I, I feel God wants me to do this. Well, what do I do? I look right here first. Can I justify this in scripture? Is it a scriptural action? Okay. If it is, then I might pursue it. Now, I need to remind everybody that every, I think every believer longs to hear from the Lord. We long to be confident of what the Lord wants us to do. I mean, how many of us really want to waste our time pursuing things that are not God's will when we could somehow know exactly what God wants us to do and pursue that? I mean, there are great benefits. There are great blessings to be in the midst of God's will. We long for this, this personal word from God. I mean, we put out our fleece and we're, we're waiting for a response, right? Oh, Gideon put out a fleece uh, twice. Um, but that was a very special time. Well, I want you to understand. I think we fail to grasp that as we read and as we study and hear the word of God taught and preached, it is a personal word from God to us because the scriptures are living and active. God is speaking to us through them. It is a personal and supernatural experience. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes. We come to the word and we say, Lord, fill us with your word. Let the Holy Spirit guide me and provide for me understanding. It is a personal word from the Lord. God has spoken and is in fact still speaking through his scripture. We don't need more special revelation in fact I don't think we get any more special revelation in the sense of what the Lord has said right here what we need is illumination what we need is the Holy Spirit to provide us understanding so that we can read and see and apply it and live it and this is exactly what Jesus has promised the Holy Spirit will give us he will teach us as his word abides within us through the scripture we hear God teaching, rebuking, correcting, training us that we might be righteous in his sight. The word of God transforms us by renewing our minds so that we think more like him and less like the world. Instead of needing God to dictate, us what, dictate to us what to do in every step of life and how to do it and when to do it, what we need to do is fill our minds and our hearts with the word and become increasingly able, therefore, to discern the will of God, what is good and what is perfect. How do I know what God wants me to do? Fill your heart and your mind with his word. Those are the promises that he places in his word. Now, Jonathan Edwards, you know, Jonathan's my my favorite, he was part of the Great Awakening. In fact, some of his preaching really spurred the, the First Great Awakening. And, you know, Edwards was... History tells us Edwards was not very exciting. Okay? He would not read monotone, but he was close to reading monotone in his sermons. But yet, in the middle of his sermons, people would throw themselves in the aisle and repent and confess, and they would weep and they would seek out God's mercy. And this was the start of the Great Awakening. Well, after a while... It became kind of cool. Now, that's 21st century language. It became kind of cool because those people who were throwing themselves out in the aisle and weeping and gnashing their teeth and crying out for care and for mercy, they were getting some attention. So imagine the sinfulness of my heart. I'm sitting there in the back row. Not that the back row is bad. Good Presbyterians sit in the back row. Okay? And I'm sitting there in the back row and I'm going, Man, you see what they're doing to him, how much attention he's getting? I'm going to throw myself out in the aisle and scream and cry out. So Edwards writes a book, it's called Religious Affections. In today's world, religious affections would be Christian emotions, okay? So he writes this book in an attempt to discern the difference between what is a true Christian emotion and what is one that is produced out of envy or or faked or something like that. And in it, he writes this, I just pulled a little little passage out of it. I know by experience that impressions being made with great power and upon the minds of true saints, yea, eminent saints, and presently after, yea, in the midst of extraordinary exercises of grace and sweet communion with God and attended with texts of scriptures strongly impressed on the mind are no sure signs of there being revelations from heaven for I have known such impressions to fail and prove vain. He said you can have great teaching, you can have movement of the Holy Spirit, and you can have people who are faking it. There's no sure sign, there's no guarantee there that they are from heaven. You have to read the whole book to get everything, and it's a great work, and I encourage you to do so. When I read scripture, though, I don't have to wonder if it's somebody's late night pizza that gave them some insight. I know that this is from God. I know when I read it, God expects me to obey it. I don't have to wonder about it. I don't have to go, "Gee, I wonder if that's really what the Lord wants me to do." Yeah, that's what he wants me to do. Cause why? Cause it says right here in his word. When you open God's word, you know right away you better obey. Okay, that's that those are two problems. That the psalmist is facing here. So let's go back to Psalm seventy-three. The psalmist is disturbed by the prosperity of the wicked. The prosperity seemed to him to be in contradiction. What he was experiencing seemed to be in contradiction to what he was taught about God. What he had been taught about coming about God was coming face to face with his experience in life, and he he wasn't liking what he was seeing. Okay. They weren't compatible according to the way that he looked at it. Okay, now it's very important that you understand. Not according to the promises of God, but according to the way that he was looking at it. He'd been told that if you're upright, if you're pure in heart, then God would be good to you, take care of you, watch over you. Instead, in his situation, he was finding that he was in the midst of difficulty. He was in the midst of discouragement, and the wicked around him were prospering. And he says, Lord, you can imagine how upset he was. He says, Lord, what is going on here? And in fact, you get to verse 2, he says, But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. This is kind of a euphemism for I almost pitched out the whole faith thing here. Because it's not matching my experience in the world. And here, here. As we begin Psalm 73, this is one of the great values of the Psalms, one of the great values of the Psalms. They're an enactment of what most of us are going through, have gone through, or will go through. If God loves me, why do I suffer? If God has all the power in all the universe, why doesn't he destroy or at least curb evil? Why do the wicked seem to prosper while here I am just trying to struggle along? How how are these things, how could these things be? And remember, the application of this psalm was to be sung in worship. Now, Carl Truman wrote an article a few years ago, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? Okay, now when we sing... We, we sing out of, we want to sing, when you're joyful, you know, you see somebody driving down the road and, and they've got the radio on and they're just singing away. Why? Because they're so happy, they just can't contain it. How many of us, when we're miserable driving down the road, turn the radio on and sing to the radio? Sing a miserable song, Lord, why gloom, despair, isn't that the Hee ho song, agony on me, why, you know, why do we sing? No, God says you need to sing the song in the midst of this. So Carl Carl Truman writes this. Let me quote from him. Church music is full of a diet of unremittingly jolly choruses and hymns which inevitably creates an unrealistic horizon of expectation which sees the normative Christian life as one long triumphalist street party. Hmm. This is a theologically incorrect and pastorally disastrous scenario in a world where most of us are broken in some degree where most of us experience hardship, experience trouble, where we cry out to the Lord. We want answers. We want to know why this is happening. But there is an unconscious belief that Christianity is, or at least should be, all about health and happiness and great things happening to you. He writes, Few Christians in areas where the church has been strongest over recent decades, China, Africa, Eastern Europe, would regard uninterrupted emotional highs as normal Christian experience. Indeed, the biblical portraits of believers give no room for such a notion. Look at Abraham. Look at Joseph, David, Jeremiah, the psalmists, and how they write about their experiences of God, what they see in the world, and the promises of God's Word. There's agony. There's lamentation. Now and then we see joy, too. But this is very different from any... As he writes, frothy triumphalism that has infected so much of Western Christianity. In the Psalms, God has given the church a language which allows it to express even the deepest agonies of the human soul in the context of worship. So you never have to think, well, I'm going to worship. I better get psyched up. Come to worship with your heartaches. Pour them out before the Lord. This is what the psalmist is doing here. Okay? It's in the context of worship. So here we have a man, Asaph, who was in charge of the choir in the temple. And he writes a song that speaks of some of the most, the heartfelt searching questions that a Christian in distress could ask. You come into God's house and you bring all of your heartache and you bring all of your questions and you bring all of your distress and you bring all of your despair. And God will hear your cry we can put that heartache before him. We can put that distress. We can put that despair in the context of what God says about himself in his word. We, we, it's, this is not to be separate. Our heartache and despair is not to be said, well, this is the world and this is the way it is. But, and then we come to his word and all the happiness. There, we bring our heartache and despair to the word and we say, Lord, what does this mean? And when we read his word and understand his word, then we gain a context for this. For you will not understand your experience unless you understand his word and what he reveals about himself in his word. So go back a couple pages to Job chapter 1. We will not be doing all of Job. Uh, There was some Puritan guy who preached for 40 years and the only book he preached out of was Job. You know, (laughs) that's tough, (laughs) okay. And then when he was done, he writes, he, he, he felt he did not cover it all. <laughs> all right, Job chapter 1, verse 1. Really, verse 1 and verse 8. That's all we're going to look at today. Because uh, we, we have some good understanding of who Job was like and what the Lord was doing. And, and I won't give you the whole narrative of Job, but look at one one. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. So was Job a good guy? Yes. Was he a righteous guy? Yes. Look at verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. Now why do you think that the Lord gives us this picture of Job here in the first verse and then reiterates it in the 8th verse? Because everything from now on in the next couple chapters is all bad that happens to Job. I mean, you know what happens to Job. He loses his servants. He loses his kids. His wife tells him to curse God and die. He sits in the ashes and scrapes the boils off of his body with with, uh, broken pieces of pottery. And along come his three friends, right? How many of us want friends like these guys? Okay. Job, you've got to confess your sin, Job. Job. Because there's something in you, there's, there's something there that you've been doing in secret, okay? You are alienated from God, that's why these bad things are happening. You don't have enough faith, that's why these bad things are happening. You've got secret sin in your life, that's why these bad things are happening. But, but God has already said that Job is what? Blameless, upright, fears God, turns away from evil. So this is a problem for us. What is happening here in Job's life? I mean, we, we're used to evil. We see evil all the time. We're used to seeing bad things. I mean, bad things happen. We don't particularly like them. We ask the Lord why he's he's doing this or why these things are happening. It's not as if God just says, well, I'm going to let those things happen to Job and turn his face away from Job. The Lord lays down a plan. He suggests to Satan. And then he lays down parameters about what Satan can do to Job. This is the Lord. In a real sense, bringing these things upon somebody who is faithful. Job is not perfect, but these trials did not come as punishment. They didn't come because he was sinful. They came because it was God's will to do so in his life. Job was godly, and it showed. He was a man of spiritual integrity, moral integrity, he bore those distinguishing marks for somebody who loved God. In fact, we see later in scripture he's mentioned with Daniel and Noah as somebody who was profoundly known as loving the Lord. So it's all the more shocking then that Job suffers. And it's disturbing for many of us that it's at the hand of God really that he suffers. So the problem is God, right? Isn't that God? If God could just get his stuff together, life would be so much better for us. I hope the lightning doesn't come down to strike me, okay? God actually instigates these trials. As I said, he puts it in Satan's mind. He lays down the parameters. Our experience tells us that these types of things are bad. Until we read about that guy named Joseph in the Old Testament. What happened to Joseph? Joseph. Sold by his brothers, a slave, falsely accused, in prison, all these things. And at the end, it says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So when we come to Job and this issue and and, and this experience of here's God and he's good and yet I'm suffering, remember that this book of Job is primarily about God. Yeah, it's about Job, but it's really about God. Why do we suffer? Well, if you, we won't turn there, but when you get to the end of Job, you find that Job is not given a revelation. He's not given an answer to his question. He's given a revelation of God's mysteries. Okay? Now, the question before us is, what do I really want? Do I want an answer to my human question? Do I want an answer to this question as to why, Lord? Or do I want God to reveal to me that he is good, that he cares about me, that he will not abandon me even in the midst of whatever it is I face. Our job as his creation, as his children, those who purpose to glorify him and enjoy him forever, to trust him as he reveals himself in his word. That's what he calls us to do. He is good. His love for his own will never change. And no experience we have, even anything that we see with our eyes, or struggles or hardships that we have can change the fact of God's character and his promises to those who are his in Christ Jesus. So let's pray. Uh, Lord, we all have questions. But you say bring those. Come to worship with your heartache. Come to worship with your struggle. Lay them before me, but remember that we must understand those things in the context of your word. We must understand our heartaches and our struggles and our despair in the context of who you are as you have revealed yourself to us, that you are good, that your love endures for all time, that when we are in your care, that when we belong to you through the work of Jesus Christ, you never leave us or forsake us. And we can come before you with all that's on our heart and cry out to you, And you call us back to your word you call us and remind us of who you are of your care you may not give us answers you may not reveal to us why these things are going on why i'm in the midst of this chaos in this world but you will reveal to us who you are your mercy and your grace your loving kindness you reveal to us that you are good fix these things in our hearts lord That when we come face to face with the struggles of life, your goodness is confirmed in our hearts. We cling to the things of Christ, for he alone is our Savior. And in your word alone do we find the truth that we need. So we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.